Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 377 with Dr. Judith Orloff. Dr. Orloff is talking about how to defend yourself against energy vampires that suck your, well, energy at work and what's to be done with them. We also got some insight into empathy and empaths and highly sensitive people and what all these terms mean. So you'll learn one, the difference between ordinary empathy, highly sensitive people and empaths. Two, two ways to avoid absorbing the emotions of your environment. And three, the important skills the rest of us can learn from highly sensitive people. So if you want to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F377. While exploring awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you check out some of our cool resources. One cool resource is the Gold Nugget email list. If you sign up for that, you can get summary wisdom from Dr. Orloff, the 377 guests who've gone before her in a quick bite-sized note-taking nugget situation. So you can read the key insights from Dr. Orloff and all the guests in about two to five minutes each. That's called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Dr. Orloff's story. Dr. Orloff is a New York Times bestselling author who specializes in treating sensitive people in her Los Angeles-based private practice. Dr. Orloff is on the psychiatric clinical faculty at UCLA, and her work has been featured on the Today Show, CNN, PBS, and in USA Today, and the Oprah Magazine, and the Los Angeles Times. Big thanks to Judith for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Dr. Orloff. Dr. Orloff, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. You're very welcome. Well, I'm excited to dig into some of your wisdom and expertise here. And could you maybe tell us the story of your journey and how you came to understand the concept of sensitive people? Oh, well, I, I wrote the Empath Survival Guide because I'm a psychiatrist and an empath. And being an empath is being an emotional sponge. It's being so sensitive that you literally can absorb the emotions and even the physical symptoms of other people into your own body. And I knew that I had this ability when I was a little girl. I couldn't go into shopping malls or crowded places because I'd walk in feeling fine and walk out exhausted or with some ache or pain I didn't have before. And my mother, who was a physician, my father also a physician, and I have 25 physicians in my family, you know, she would say, oh, dear, you just don't have a thick enough skin. And so I grew up believing there was something wrong with me in terms of my sensitivities, rather than they're a gift and they need to be uh, managed in a positive way. So that's why I wanted to write the book was to give sensitive people and empath skills on how to be sensitive and open and caring without absorbing the stress of the world into your own body. Now, how do you do that? What skills do you need? Um, and so uh, as a little girl, I knew that I had these abilities. And then uh, when I went through medical school, uh, I went to USC, I went to uh, UCLA, and um, I, my empathic skills kind of went under and I became more immersed in the science of behavior and the science of the body and, you know, biological truths of what was going on. And it wasn't until I opened my private practice in psychiatry um, that I began to, to use them again. In fact, I had a dream about a patient that she was going to, actually, it wasn't a dream, it was a, it was a, um, 
awakened intuition that she was going to commit suicide. And I didn't see any evidence clinically for that. So I didn't bring it up with her. And I ignored the dream. And she, in fact, overdosed on the pills that I prescribed for her. And luckily, she lived. But that was my wake up call as a physician that I had to listen to my sensitivities and my intuition because it could extremely affect my patient's health and well-being if I didn't. And so since that point, which was, you know, a long time ago, I've really incorporated my own sensitivities and my empathy and my intuition into patient care and into my personal life. Wow, that's a powerful story. And so when it comes to the terminology, just want to make sure we're on the same page. So when you say empath, I guess I'm thinking of Deanna Troy from Star Trek, The Next Generation. So you don't mean that you can read people's thoughts, but rather that you're sensitive. Are these interchangeable terms, empath and a highly sensitive person? Or how would you think about it? They're a little different. There's a spectrum of empathy, whereas ordinary empathy, which is so beautiful, is when your heart goes out to somebody and you feel what they're feeling um, in joy or in pain. And that's kind of the middle of the spectrum. Then if you go up a little bit on the spectrum, you have highly sensitive people. And these are people who are overwhelmed by sights, smells, sounds, noises, scratchy clothes, um, and like to be quiet and usually introverts. So they're very sensorily sensitive. Then if you go up one more notch on the empathy spectrum, you get the empath who have all the sensory components of, of you know, sensitivity to light and sound, et cetera. Um, but they're porous systems and they tend to absorb other people's positive and negative emotions and other feelings into their own bodies and physical symptoms. Intriguing. And so now, I had heard in a previous conversation that the highly sensitive person has a different nervous system. It's like biochemically structures are in fact different than that of a quote unquote typical or non-highly sensitive person. And is the empath also have a nervous system that's differentiable from that of the highly sensitive person? Well, I think empaths, um, interesting research on this, that empaths have hyperactive mirror neuron systems, which means their compassion neurons are working overtime. So they can see somebody they don't even know who's in pain and they feel it in their own bodies. No, it's too much. It's overkill. It's not healthy for the empath to do that. But it's thought that the mirror neurons are hyperactive. It's thought in terms of the dopamine system in the in the body, dopamine is a pleasure hormone, that empaths need less of it to feel satisfied. And so that's why they're happy at home reading a book, whereas other people, extroverts, um, require much more of a dopamine rush. So they love going to stadiums and big football games and parties and, you know, lots of dopamine there. But it's thought that empaths don't need to have that dopamine rush because they're satisfied with much less, which accounts for more of the quiet behavior. Mm -hmm. Intriguing. Great. So now if you find yourself in that situation, like you're highly sensitive or an empath, what are some of your top tips in terms of just, you know, you've got the book called The Empath Survival Guide, you know, surviving, not getting the illness or getting bogged down and feeling blue because of what you're picking up around you? Right. Good question. Um, Well, the first thing that sensitive people need to do is conscious breath. 
where the minute you feel like you're picking up something from somebody else, whether it's their anger or their depression or their low energy, you have to begin breathing it out. The breath is a purification system in the body. So the more you breathe, the more you can begin to circulate whatever it is that you picked up. So that's important because many empaths hold their breath. They get afraid and they get overwhelmed. They get on sensory overload, which is very common for empaths, and they just hold their breath. So the first thing you do is breathe. And then the second thing I always teach my empath patients is to learn how to set healthy boundaries. As you have to learn that no is a complete sentence and that you have to be ready to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't go out tonight. You know, or no, I'm sorry, I can't take on that project. I'm too um, booked already, something like that. Because empaths are people pleasers and they wear an invisible sign around them that says, I can help you. You see, so people flock to empaths from far and wide and just to tell you their life story. I mean, I could be sitting at an airport, minding my own business in my little bubble, and somebody will, you know, sit next to me and start up, you know, with the most intimate things, which I'm not really open to at that point. So I've learned to set limits and say something like, you know, this is my time to be quiet and do my work on my computer, you know, so I'm not really open to talking. You see, but empaths are not used to speaking that way to people. They feel like it's impolite. They feel like they're going to sacrifice themselves just so the other person would be happy. Um, And so empaths need to set healthy boundaries. And, you know, it's often a process where you just have to set a small one and then a bigger one and a bigger one. So you get used to it because an empath who doesn't set boundaries is going to be exhausted. And that's the downside of being an empath is you take on so much. You're tired, exhausted on sensory sensory overload. Too much is coming in too fast. You don't know what to do with it. It affects your relationship. It affects your health. Empaths have get fibromyalgia, uh, adrenal fatigue because they're Stress response is going constantly because they're always taking in stimuli and that that's just not healthy. So the setting of the boundaries really helps to, you know, say no and narrow, you know, what you take in, you know, via your ears or your eyes or who you communicate with or how long you talk on the phone. You don't talk for two hours. You talk for three minutes. You know, you you begin to, you know, understand and work with these very practical issues so that you can have a healthier life where empaths can thrive. Mm -hmm. And so we got the breathing and the setting of boundaries. And I'm also curious to get your take on if we don't find ourselves in the categories of sensitive people or empaths, what are some of the potential ways that we can kind of tap into some of the wisdom or perspective or superpower, if you will, that our counterparts have? All right. Well, the first thing I I teach my patients who are non-empaths is to listen to their intuition rather than to stay in their head. Because if you stay in your head and you're analyzing and thinking all the time, that's stopping you from empathizing and feeling. And so it's important if you want to empathize and develop that to have good eye contact Not intrusive eye contact, but just really look at somebody in the eyes rather than having your eyes darting around or checking your texts or whatever to take you out of your sense of presence and listen from your heart 
And if somebody starts sharing a lot of emotions, this happens with a lot of couples that I work with where one is an empath and one is an intellectual. Um, the intellectual has to learn how to listen from his or her heart and not try and get in there and fix things too quickly. That's very irritating for an empath to have somebody do that. And so in practice, how does one listen with your heart well? Well, I call it holding space where you can hold the space for somebody without judging them, without having to say anything, without intervening, just having a very loving countenance and sending loving energy from your heart and wishing the person well, basically, and not getting in there and, and doing anything other than, you know, holding a very positive energy for somebody and a loving look on your eyes. And it's it's really liberating to have someone do that when you're going as an empath, I'll just speak for myself, you know, if I'm going through some intense emotion or if I'm going through something where I really need to be listened to and held and, you know, contained in a, in a certain way with safety, just to have somebody hold a space like that lovingly makes all the difference instead of reacting to me, instead of trying to fix me, instead of trying to solve the issue, just holding that space in the beginning is really, really helpful and calming. Okay. Well, so in a way, it's more about what you're not doing than what you are doing, it sounds like, in terms of when it's not so much that we need to access some profound sense of connectedness to the particular emotions as it is just kind of Keep your mouth shut and pleasantly smile and, and listen and, and allow the conversation to unfold without judgment or rushing to fix, analyze, solve something. Well, that's certainly a good beginning. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, so that's good stuff. And then I want to get your take on you have in particular, you know, listed out, enumerated five emotional or energy vampires. So could you identify what those are and particularly how they might pop up in the workplace? and how we should go about defending against them. Yeah, well, I, I hope I picked the five that you're you're speaking of. There are a lot of different kinds of, of energy vampires, but one of them is the victim or the poor me person who, you know, everything is, is their fault. And it's not their fault. Everything is the world's fault. Everything is falling apart. It's, mother doesn't understand me. My boyfriend just broke up with me. Uh, my boss is not appreciating my work and they keep you on the phone for two hours complaining. And when you try and put in a solution, they say, yes, but they go, yes, you're right. But and then they start up again. So if you identify with having people like that in your life, the key is to set limits with the amount of time you, you talk to them and you don't don't enable them. There's a lot of times people enable these victims by saying, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And, you know, on and on and on. And then they call you the next night with the same story and the next night. And then you're screening your calls and you don't want to pick up the phone. So it's, you know, a vicious cycle. So you have to begin to to speak up. So it's the, the victim is the, the first one that's very common in the workplace um, and, and also the drama queen. That's another type of energy vampire. This is somebody who wears you out with off the chart dramas where everything is a drama. Um, the little spot on my arm is cancer. Um, you know, the world is falling apart. I'm going to uh, be fired at any moment. Right. Or they invent like 
someone said something and they kind of infer from that all kinds of ill will. And could you believe that they think that blah, 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 blah. I was like, well, they never really said that. You just kind of made that up. And, and it might be accurate, but, you know, it might very well not be. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a drama queen or a king. Uh-huh. It's both sexes when they get into it. And so most importantly, don't ask this person how they're doing. Okay. You know, at work, you know, you don't want to, you see them coming, you just want to smile and not ask them because then they'll start up. And then you want to use the I'm not interested body language where you just kind of subtly point your body in a different direction rather than looking deeply into their eyes or pointing directly at them and looking intensely at them as if you're interested, Mm -hmm. which you're probably not because you have your own work to do and you have other things happening and you don't want to, you don't have the time to take to listen to all this. And so when you don't give them juice, they go on to another victim. So if you say, I'm so sorry, this is happening to you and I've got to get back to my work, I'll hold good thoughts for you. And you say it in a very matter of fact tone. Now this is hard for empaths because they want to fix everybody. You know, coming from an empath, you see somebody who's in pain and you want to make them feel better. You just want to. And you just can't live that way. You you can't make everybody feel better. You can't fix everyone. So those of you sensitive people or empaths out there, if you notice you're a caretaker or you're a fixer, you want to fix people. That's something to really work on in yourself because you sacrifice your vital energy if you do that. Mm-hmm. You could certainly help family members who are in need or somebody who's close to you, but not everybody. Empaths want to help everybody, and then they end up exhausted in bed. Okay. And how about the next vampire? Uh, Next vampire is a narcissist. You know, the narcissist is someone who's me, me, me. Everything's about them. And um, they could be charming and seductive and intelligent, but the minute you don't do something according to their program, they become cold, withholding, punishing, judgmental, or give you the silent treatment. You know, that's what happens with some couples that I, I work with, you know, who one is a narcissist and he or she just gives them the silent treatment for weeks as a punishment. And so narcissists have what's called empathy deficient disorder. And what that means is that they're not capable of empathy as we know it. But there's a toxic attraction between empaths and narcissists. And I go into this in depth in the empath survival guide because I want to warn people away from these relationships. They're extremely toxic and dangerous to sensitive people. Um, The narcissist you know, it doesn't hurt them much because nothing much hurts them. Uh, and, and it's so hard for empaths to grasp that because they think that everybody feels like they do mm-hmm. in terms of caring. And it's so hard to grasp that there can be a human being who actually doesn't feel that things in that way. They're, they're wired neurologically differently than other people with regular empathy or being an empath. So, you know, they have to lower their expectations of narcissists, not confide in them. Um, don't get triggered by them um, in terms of asking them to understand deep parts of you that they don't really care to understand and just see them as being crippled in a certain sense in their hearts because they care about themselves and they'll 
care about you as long as you're doing something that pleases them. But the minute you go against them, they'll wage war. So this isn't a, a good partnership possibility. And if you're stuck with a boss who's a narcissist, you know, which is very common, you know, I, I work in Los Angeles and work with a lot of people in the entertainment industry. And it's a real <laughs> challenge to work with narcissistic bosses. Are there a couple of narcissists in the entertainment industry, perchance? No, we don't that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if you do have a boss, what are the key steps then? Well, to lower your expectations, to, to right. go go through the book and see the criteria for narcissists. The, the great thing is, you know, they fit the bill every time. You know, they're very easy to diagnose. And so you have to be able to recognize them and not be prone to seduction. Yes, they can act like they have empathy, especially in romantic situations. You know, they, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, here, you know, let's go on a vacation. Let's, you're wondering, you know, whatever they're going to do to sweep you off your feet. But the minute, you know, they really have to be there in an intimate way, they're not, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. It's a false front, which is so deceptive. And they do gaslighting when you're in a relationship with them. And gaslighting is when they make you feel like you're going crazy you know, where you say, oh, the sky is so beautiful today. It's, the blue is so pretty. What? The sky's not blue. The sky's magenta. What's wrong with you? So that's how they beat an empath self-esteem down in a relationship over many years. Hmm. Okay. And what's the next vampire? Um, the next vampire is the judger or the blamer, the criticizer, where they cut you down by criticizing you and saying, oh, you know, you'd be so beautiful if it wasn't for your hair or, you know, you look like you could, you know, you've gained a little weight, haven't you? You know, those kinds of cutting comments. And so they, they put you down to raise themselves up. Mm -hmm. And so if you're dealing with that at work, how ought we respond? Well, work is always the hardest thing. Um, but if you, it depends who it is also, if it's somebody who's an equal and you could speak honestly with them, um, you can say, you know, that really hurt my feelings when you said that I'd appreciate it if you didn't, you know, comment about my shoes or my hair or my appearance. Um, so that's when you could be honest with somebody and you have to keep setting those kinds of limits too with people because they don't learn all at once. Um, but if it's, you know, let's say a coworker who's criticizing you um, to number one, don't be emotionally triggered by it. Um, and you have to work on your own self-esteem and shift the topic away from that to a solution. It just depends on on how honest you can be with somebody. There, there are people at work you just have to put up with and your work is to to work on your own self-esteem, to meditate, to center yourself and don't buy into it, whatever they're saying about you, because people you know, have all kinds of opinions. And as it is said, opinions are the lowest form of knowledge. So, you know, you have to really strengthen your own self-esteem if you can't honestly give people feedback. But if it's family members, if it's friends, you know, you better give them feedback because that, that's not acceptable in a friendship or in a loving relationship to be criticized all the time. All right. And how about the final vampire? The final vampire would be the passive aggressive. And this is connected to the rageaholic and the, the anger addict. So it's the flip side of it. The rageaholic is one energy vampire who 
cuts you down with anger and rage and dumps anger on you, which you know, to empaths feels toxic and painful. Um, I personally have a no yelling rule in my house or around me because it's just, I'm sensitive to sound, first of all. So a yelling voice and, uh, you know, somebody who's dumping toxic energy all over me is just not acceptable. So um, I set that limit for myself and I teach my patients to do that. And the way to deal with anger is to make an appointment to talk about it. You know, make a request, say, is now a good time? No. How about tomorrow morning? Yes. All right. And then stick to one cause of the anger. It's called venting versus dumping. So you say, I'm angry that you left me sitting in the restaurant. And so you talk about that. You don't bring in the kitchen sink with it and everything else you're angry with. And so there's a skill to dealing with an anger addict. And a passive aggressive is somebody who is angry, but with a smile. They don't have the angry <laughs> affect, but they say these god awful things to you that sting and feel like you're being poked, you know, with a, with a smile. And so it's just the uh, passive form of anger. All right. Well, tell me, Dr. Orloff, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Just that if you're a sensitive person, you can deal with these energy vampires. And I look at them as teachers. Now, how can they teach you to learn how to set clear boundaries? How can they teach you to develop your self-esteem if, if you're being triggered by them? You know, how, how are they going to teach you to improve your communication skills? So instead of feeling victimized, try and see what you can learn from them and choose people who are positive and loving and creative and supportive to be around you in your circle. You know, don't choose these energy vampires. If you have a choice, which you don't always, because sometimes they're family members, Choose to have the positive, loving people around you so you can get all that love and the positivity and the connection and the fun. Because empaths feel that to an extreme as well. So it's extremely pleasurable to have a good friend that you can trust or to, you know, have that level of connection with people that is so gratifying and fulfilling. You know, so you want to have positive people around you as much as possible and enjoy that. All right. Thank you. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I love the Dalai Lama quote, the most precious human quality is empathy. Uh You know, it's the most precious. You know, really think about that. What is the most precious human quality is empathy. And then also, I love Emily Dickinson. Um, I am large. I contain multitudes. You know, just to remember how large we are. And how multifaceted and vast our spirits are and how nothing can stop us. Um, And to feel that radiance in your spirit and the largeness of, you know, who you are and your connection to the universe. That's I've always loved that quote so much. Uh And how about a favorite study? A favorite research study? Right. Um, I love the study uh, that was done on making intuitive choices. When you make a choice where you're about to make a big choice, like buying a car, buying a house, that this study has found, and it was done in Sweden, that when you sleep on the subject, you get better information and make a better choice than when you just make impulsive decisions. 
And what that means to me is that the dreaming process and the replenishment process that goes on during sleep can help with decision making and that we need to depend on that more than just our waking minds. Or in addition, you know, as a companion to the waking mind, when we make our decisions. So I'm, I'm a big believer in dreaming and remembering your dreams, writing your dreams down and using that information um, for your life. You know, I, I have dream journals, you know, that I've kept since I was a little girl. And so this study is an elegant way of pointing to that in terms of framing it around decision making. So it's, it's a wonderful study. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Oh, my favorite book. I have a lot of favorite books, but my favorite book was A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline LaIngle. Oh, yes. Yeah, I read that. That just saved me as a child because I've always been against conformity and I've always believed in the power of love. And, you know, just I don't know if you saw the movie. Oprah actually made a movie out of it recently um, where (laughs) she was one of the magical female creatures that came to help the little boy find his father. Um, But anyways, um, they go to a planet where everything is censored, basically, and all the children have to bounce the ball at the same rate. Everybody has to look the same. Everybody has to do the same thing. I mean, that's always terrified me. And I always fought, you know, for originality and creativity. And so it's a story about how you overcome that you know, with the deep power of love and how you can reunite family and really create more love, you know, even when in the darkest of the dark situations. So, you know, I I love that book. Uh And how about a favorite tool? A pen. I'm a writer. Is there a particular pen that you love? (laughs) I love the very thin Sharpies. Oh, yes, me too. I love the thin Sharpies and I take notes on everything, on napkins, on random pieces of paper. If I'm in the gym on the treadmill and I get an idea for my writing, I'll, you know, stop and go get a piece of paper, write it, put it in my bra, you know, until later and I'll pull it out. You know, so I'm a big believer in writing and in journaling and having paper around and getting those dreams down, getting those ideas down. Um and I use the computer when I write, you know, I use, use the computer way too much. But there's something so elegant and wonderful about the written word and writing it with your hand, having a pen in hand, you know, so archetypal. So I, I would say, you know, those thin Sharpies, I have a bunch of them all over my house and my office and my car. All right. And how about a favorite habit? Uh, meditation. It's a practice. I meditate. First thing in the morning and last thing in the evening before I go to bed and hopefully during the day as well. Um, It's a way to center myself and it's a wonderful tool for empaths to decrease stimulation, to connect with your own heart, to quiet the um, stress response and all the adrenaline rushing through your system and to connect to a higher power, connect to spirit, however you want to define it. By sitting and breathing and putting your hand on your heart and letting thoughts go by, not attaching to them, as you reconnect your heart, your breath, and your body, you can calm your whole system and you could begin to feel a sense of love that is sometimes hard when you're just in your head. You're thinking all the time. Uh Thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect, resonate with folks and gets 
sort of quoted frequently from you? Yeah, I mean, it's a revelation to find out if you're an empath. There, Ever since, you know, I've been discussing this, I get so many emails and calls and workshop participants who are waking up to the fact that they are not crazy. There is nothing wrong with them. They're not being neurotic. They're just sensitive. Empaths have a wide open sensibility and sensitivity, which is empowering. And there's nothing wrong with you. I think that's the, the nugget. There is nothing wrong with you. There's something right with you. You know, if you can awaken your intuition and your empathy, the deep empathy for yourself and other people uh, and begin to learn strategies, some of which we've talked about to protect your energy from uh, getting exhausted and worn out or from energy vampires. You know, I, I think that's the nugget. You know, that this is a, a particular personality type. And if you fit in, then if you go into therapy, you don't want to go on medication right away. There's other strategies to dealing with this. So it, it changes everything when it comes to you know, freeing yourself from exhaustion and fear, negativity. And so you can then get stronger energetically and emotionally so that you're not absorbing so much angst from the world. All right. And Dr. Orloff, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Um, you can go to my website, and that's www.drjudithorloff.com. And I also have an Empath Survival Guide online course there that people can watch at their convenience. It's a video course uh, explaining different aspects of being an empath, and I do videos for each lesson which, you know, can be very helpful to explain how do you be an empath at work? How are you an empath in love relationships, you know, empaths in health? So there are different areas to really understand yourself in a much deeper level. That's also at drjudithorloff.com. Mm-hmm. And do you have a final challenge or a call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Dare to be empathic, dare to care for people and, you know, not be self-absorbed with all of your own issues and, you know, let your empathy and caring show. Now tell someone you look great today and you know, just go out of your way for somebody else. It's everybody's struggling with their own things. I can guarantee you that. And when you just say a simple kind word to somebody or, you know, are empathic with them for just a moment, it can shift everything for them. And it also, it gives back to you. All right. Dr. Orloff, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for sharing the good word and good luck with all you're up to. Thank you very much. I really appreciated her take on how if you just say a simple kind word or express some empathy to someone, that can just change everything. If it's just for a moment, one sentence can just change the whole dynamic of that conversation. And also it gives back to you, which is a kind, simple reminder and one particularly worth heeding during this holiday season. So thanks to Dr. Orloff for that and more. Hope you dug it. You can check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep377. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe. If you do, you'll hear from our next guest. It is Josh Kaufman. He is something of a brilliant expert when it comes to rapid learning. He is the author of The Personal MBA and more. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. 
Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.